It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Hannah White, Deputy Director of the Institute for Government, who's previously worked in Whitehall as Secretary of the Committee on Standards in Public Life in the Cabinet Office, and before that was a House of Commons clerk. Her new book, called Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons, is published by Manchester University Press. So I'm delighted to be joined on today's episode of The New Statesman by Dr. Hannah White. And it's a very good time for your book to come out, or perhaps a very bad time for democracy. (laughs) So thanks so much for coming on. We've got a lot to talk about. But first of all, as you were someone who previously was inside the system, I just wonder how you think the culture in the Commons and in Whitehall as well has changed from the time that you were there. I think you started in, in, in the House of Commons in 2004. And of course, you were around sort of to see how the expenses scandal played out. Was it very different back then? I think some things have changed. I think in any organisation, culture is the slowest thing to change. So what's really changed since 2004 is some of the apparatus around standards. We've outsourced MPs, expenses, salaries and so on to mm. an external body, which I think has really put a lid on stories about misuse of expenses, largely speaking, etc the ones which end up being criminal. Then we had the new scandal about bullying and harassment in in the Commons, and that really exposed the inadequacy of procedures for dealing with. That's been addressed. Whether it's been totally satisfactorily addressed is another question, but whether the culture change which needs to follow from putting those sorts of structures in place has happened, I think, is a more doubtful question. Okay, yeah, and I just wonder how you feel about all these stories about parties from Downing Street coming out. Is that a Downing Street that you recognise from your time in Whitehall? I think if I draw the comparison, it's really with the behaviour of MPs and Mm -hmm. how that is then reflected in what they do when they become ministers and they're in, in Downing Street. And I think one of the things I talk about in the book is this culture of exceptionalism and this sense that... MPs are special, the rules don't apply to them, and so they get to do pretty much what they want. And I think that we can see that reflected in Partygate. And I think what I try to explain in the book is that actually there are really good reasons why MPs are special, and there are rules which should not apply to them. The fact that they can speak in the chamber and they are not going to be prosecuted for what they say. They need to be able to challenge and to, to, to defend their constituents or raise issues that they want to raise without fear of being prosecuted for slander or libel or anything like that, for example. But I think too many MPs make the assumption that actually their specialness goes beyond that and that sort of normal rules, like the lockdown rules, which Boris Johnson put in place for everyone else, also implicitly they have this sense that they don't really apply to them. 
Mm. And I suppose we saw a bit of, of that when the Conservative Party, or at least some of their MPs, closed rank around um, the Owen Paterson affair. And we saw the fallout of that and how politically damaging that's been. I don't think the Conservatives have recovered their poll lead since then. Is there a sense that now they can't get away with that kind of attitude anymore? I don't know. I mean, you would think that, wouldn't you? But I... I think if you look at the fact that recently the, the government's response to Labour putting down a motion to refer Boris Johnson to the Privileges Committee to investigate him, their initial response was to think, it seems, we've got a majority of, of 74, 75, whatever it is now. We're just going to whip our MPs to oppose this. We don't want a process looking into the Prime Minister. That would be inconvenient for us. And so we're just going to vote it down rather than thinking, yes, these processes exist for a reason. It's important that Parliament isn't misled. We've got nothing to hide. Then we have nothing to fear from an investigation. Let's let it go ahead. Mm. So I think that there's not necessarily, even the penny may not have even dropped yet, that actually these things are there for a reason and government shouldn't be exempt from them. Okay, and we'll get on to the Privileges Committee in a little bit, but I did want to ask you a little bit more about this MPs feeling exceptional thing, because I think there's a sense around the most recent revelations, the pandemic and, you know, Matt Hancock, we saw also breaking the rules and actually resigning for that. There's a sense that this is happening under Boris Johnson's government, but has it always been the case that MPs who then become ministers and also their their advisers as well, act in this way that is sort of counter to how we as the public would expect their behaviour to be. Are we being unfair on Boris Johnson? Is this just a sort of product of the system? I think it is a product of the system. And I think you can look back and you can find other examples under previous administrations where this has happened. And so it's not exclusively about Boris Johnson. But there are a large number of examples that have arisen under the Johnson leadership. And if you look at things like him uh, deciding that the investigation that had happened into whether Priti Patel had bullied civil servants and saying, my advisor has found that she did, but actually I'm going to overrule that and say that she didn't and therefore there's no sanction and that he felt he had to resign over that. Um, there were, he personally, his approach to the rules, I think, is setting a tone from the top, which is then legitimising behaviour for other MPs and ministers. And again, you can look at an example like the way that he has been repeatedly reprimanded by the Common Standards Committee for a careless attitude to his financial declarations. And, you know, he just doesn't think this stuff is super important for him because he's busy being Boris Johnson running the country. Actually, I would argue it's even more important that he sets an example to everyone else. Yes. So would another Prime Minister have resigned at this point, do you think? Because Amber Rudd resigned in 2018 as Home Secretary when it turned out she'd misled a select committee over deportation targets, even though she said it was inadvertent. And as I mentioned before, Matt Hancock resigned as Health Secretary when it turned out he was breaking the very COVID rules that he was making. Is there a difference in Boris Johnson's case or is it the case that another another Prime Minister or a minister would have resigned? In the end, it comes down to the politics. Um, the ministerial code, which is the thing that says you have to resign if you knowingly mislead Parliament, um, and as you say, Amber Rudd judged that even though it had been in, inadvertent in her case, she still should resign because it was such a serious thing to mislead a, a Commons committee. That ministerial code is ultimately up to the Prime Minister to administer. He determines if there's been a breach and whether there's been a sanction. The trouble is, I think, when the code was formulated, people didn't think that it would be the Prime Minister himself that would be accused. They thought that he would always be adjudicating on someone else. And I think this has shown up a sort of a difficulty with this code of conduct. So whether other Prime Ministers would have resigned in these circumstances, I think a lot of people have argued that they would. But in the end, it is up to Boris Johnson to make the decision, do the politics say that I have to go now or do I think I can cling on? 
This is the thing that I think always comes up when I speak to people who aren't political nerds like we are. They're always so shocked that the Prime Minister is the ultimate arbiter of the ministerial code. And you write about this in your book. Is it not such a fundamental weakness of our political system in the checks and balances of our political system? That's how it's set up. Well, I think the trouble is you have to ask yourself, what's the alternative? I think that there are things that you could do to strengthen this system. You could make the Prime Minister's advisor on the code able to initiate his own investigations. You could in- ensure that anything that he, any report that he or she produced was published. The Prime Minister didn't get to stop that being published and that would allow transparency and the you know, political pressure to, to play its role. But if the alternative is you set up some kind of individual or unelected body who gets to say, actually, this person should no longer be prime minister, leader of the party who have you know, been voted in as the government, that is also quite problematic. So I think it seems really inconsistent and, and problematic, but finding a better answer is also not easy. Yeah, because I suppose he is ultimately accountable to the people. There will be an election eventually where they will be able to decide on on whether or not the breach or breaches have been enough. Yeah, I think that argument is obviously, you can't argue with that in a sense, but I do think that argument is sometimes used disingenuously by, by ministers, by MPs who say, oh, the, you know, the voter must be the ultimate arbiter when they know that the vast majority of people don't vote based on these issues. They vote on parties. Lots of people don't even know who their local MP is. So particularly when you look at an individual standards issue, it's different when it's the the Prime Minister himself. Mm. But if you have an individual MP who's been accused of something, found guilty of something quite serious, for them to say, oh, it's really up to my constituents to decide when there are clear rules that have been broken, I just think that excuse is too too readily used sometimes. Yes, and there are years in between elections where you have to live with these people. (laughs) (laughs) And the bit of the ministerial code that everyone's obsessing about at the moment is the bit with the built-in sanction. If you have to, you should offer your resignation if you knowingly mislead the House. But the ministerial code also says you should comply with the law. And we know for sure that latter that latter one at least has been breached by the Prime Minister. So that, is that a case of Boris Johnson thinking I'm in charge of the ministerial code? I've decided that I don't need to resign over over that. That's that's exactly it. And that's um, his you know, prerogative because he gets to determine the consequences. It is also the case that the MP's code of conduct puts a requirement on MPs to comply with the law. And that is not in the Prime Minister's you know, gift. The Prime Minister, Parliament can determine whether its code of conduct has been breached. Theoretically, Parliament could take a view on, on that sort of breach of the internal parliamentary rules as well. But yes, when it comes to the ministerial code, it's just up to the Prime Minister to determine whether he thinks that's a resigning offence. Okay, and actually Parliament did have a a victory, as you mentioned recently, MPs voted for the Privileges Committee to investigate whether he misled Parliament. Can you explain a bit about how that works and do we know when that will happen? So we know when it won't happen. It won't happen until the Met Police have finished their investigation and the government said it wouldn't happen until the Sue Gray report, the full full fat version, had been published. What will happen is, so it's a small group of MPs, seven MPs, at the moment, the chair, who is Chris Bryant, a Labour MP, has recused himself from the investigation because uh, he had made public statements about ha- having already formed a view on what Boris Johnson had done and that, saying that he did think he had lied to the House. Mm-hmm. We're expecting, I think, for uh, him to be replaced with another Labour member. So there will be seven members, but there's a government majority on that committee. So four Conservative, two Labour, one SNP. They will do a normal committee inquiry. It's up to them to decide how to run it. They can take evidence in public from witnesses if they wish to. They couldn't compel Boris Johnson to come and give evidence, but he might wish to put his side of the facts on the record if they requested him to. They can also gather papers and and information in order to come to their view on whether 
technically speaking, uh, a contempt of the House has been committed. So Boris Johnson has essentially stopped Parliament being able to do its job properly by not telling the truth to it. Right, OK, and what would they need to find to prove that? Because would it literally have to be Boris Johnson in an email chain organising this party? Yeah, this is the interesting question. And of course, it is up to them to determine what is enough evidence for them. It's difficult. It's a difficult thing to say, you say that you believe that this was not a party at the time you spoke to the House and to contradict that. But I think if there's a weight of evidence, yeah, as you say, one thing could be a smoking gun, an email where he was consulted on whether this was a good idea to go ahead with or not and was told it wasn't and he did it regardless. That would be very straightforward. But I think it's unlikely to be that. It's more likely to be a weight of pictures of potentially scenes in gardens with drinks being consumed and things that very much look like not a work event because that's been his line so far. I just thought this was something that was necessarily in the context of work so and therefore not outside the rules. Mm -hmm. And then if they do find something like that or they gather a body of evidence, what do they then do next? How much power do they have? So they draw their own conclusions and they make a recommendation to the House. They can recommend a sanction as well. But then there would have to be a vote of the whole House on uh, whether to endorse that sanction or not. So they could recommend that he be asked to make an apology, to he could be suspended. They could re- recommend that he would be expelled from the House. But that's going to be up to them and it would be always up to the House to endorse it or not. So there's no way in which this committee is going to make the ultimate decision. Okay, and even though there is a Tory majority on this committee, it doesn't necessarily mean that they won't decide to sanction Boris Johnson because it was the same committee makeup that made the decision about Owen Paterson, is that right? The MP makeup was the mm-hmm. same, but the Standards Committee, which is the one that looks at the Code of Conduct and looked at Owen and Paterson, also has an equal number of lay members on it. Mm. So it has seven MPs and seven people who are just members of the public who've you know, stood and you know, applied to be members of this committee. They were involved in that decision, and this is just going to be the MPs. That said, everyone who's ever been involved in any of the work of the Privileges Committee has been really positive about the, the fact that they think that they will take a really clear-eyed view of this and not be party political, but it remains to be seen. Okay, thank you for explaining it all so thoroughly. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And I just wonder, in general, this is the theme of your book, what, what are the consequences of scandals like this for trust in Parliament? You write, every reported misdemeanour by an individual MP, every example of MPs acting as if rules do not apply to them, chips away at public respect for the House of Commons in a way which is not easy to repair. Why do you write that? Yeah, I mean, I, because it's what I've observed, essentially, over the last um, 20 years when I've been really working in and then thinking about Parliament and, and when I go and then talk to friends and family and, and, and people outside Parliament, it's um, really easy, I think, for MPs to view every individual sort of standards case or ethical issue on its own merits and to say to themselves, in this instance, it really would be inconvenient to, move, to lose this <laughs> MP at this time or we really want to keep our leader right now and nobody's really watching. I mean, that was Boris Johnson's response in India when he was asked about this. Nobody cares about this stuff. They care about me getting on with the job. Actually, the evidence is not that. Mm-hmm. Surveys show that uh, sort of respect for Parliament has you know, dropped off a cliff with the expenses scandal but has gone down further since. And it, that's not the case internationally. Other parliaments are more respected and have even increased their levels of respect over similar periods. So I think MPs sometimes say, you know, how terrible. Everyone thinks badly of us. There's nothing much we can do about it. But my argument would be actually every individual decision they make about this stuff makes a difference. And every time they think, I'm just going to put the short-term tactical politics ahead of the, the ethically right thing to do, that chips away at respect for Parliament. Mm-hmm. And what, this sounds like a stupid question, but why does that matter? You know, why does it matter that the general member of the public just thinks they don't trust Parliament? I think it matters because when the government thinks that the public doesn't care, then they think that they can get away with doing whatever they want in Parliament. And the way our system is supposed to work is that Parliament is this body that holds government to account and asks questions and gets to the bottom of what's really gone on and that ministers should have to think when they're going about doing their jobs and they exert some really significant powers over us all, as we've just seen with the pandemic, they should think, well, how am I going to explain this to Parliament? What are the questions I'm going to be asked by the Select Committee? Is this the decision I really want to make? And if ministers cease to think that, ministers think nobody cares what goes on in Parliament, I can probably get away with saying, oh, well, I thought that was the case at the time, but I've subsequently realised that I may have appeared to mislead the House then the quality of governance, I think, will go down because government just isn't being held to account in an effective way. Okay, and so as the public becomes more and more disillusioned with Parliament, it it gives ministers more of a, more of an excuse to disregard Parliament. And we saw that sort of beyond the the prime ministership of Boris Johnson. Theresa May tried to sideline Parliament over Brexit. She was held in contempt of Parliament over ministers' refusal to publish that legal advice. It started long before this premiership. Indeed, and I think that's something, again, I tried to explain in the book. There are some ready examples to offer now 
But I think that this government sort of tendency to want to think that, you know, Parliament is just a rubber stamp and they don't want to pay too much attention to it and it would be really easier if they didn't get in the way (laughs) is a much longer term trend. And you can see it in particular, one of the things I talk about is the legislative process that um, governments have increasingly tried to bring bills to the House, which are just very high level. They give ministers powers to do things, but they don't put the policy detail on the face of the bill. Mm -hmm. And that has been a a thing which has been happening over the last couple of decades increasingly, something that Parliament is worried about something which really accelerated in the context of Brexit and COVID because it was necessary to legislate quickly. But something that, again, think means that Parliament doesn't get a say over the detail of the policy, doesn't get to scrutinise it, ask questions about it, which is actually a way of improving that legislation. So I think, as you say, it's not just a a thing with Boris Johnson today. It's a longer term trend and therefore something we need to really think seriously about. Mm, And you give some really interesting examples on how this happened to an extreme during the pandemic. Laws were announced that haven't got anywhere near the House of Commons that we were all suddenly following overnight. And that was a very bad thing for MPs, wasn't it? Yeah, there were laws we were all subject to before the text of them had even mm. been published. There was the, uh, the lockdown over, over Christmas, which MPs didn't get a chance to take a view on until after Christmas when they came back. And it is really bad for MPs, I think, because they don't get the chance to put forward their constituents' concerns. They don't get the chance to interrogate po- possible problems with legislation. And they just it increases the sense that actually Parliament is simply a rubber stamp and and not doesn't play a sort of important role in the process. Hmm. And especially over Brexit, I think you write some examples of this as well in your book, Parliament was actually actively pitted against the people, wasn't it, by politicians and by some of the press? Yeah, that was very much the strategy that Theresa May initiated, I think, and then Boris Johnson really picked up on with a vengeance with his prorogation of Parliament and so on. And he they both tried to, I think, pit the sort of idea that there had been this direct democratic exercise of the referendum against the representative democracy of Mm. Parliament and say that because Parliament was asking questions about the nature of the Brexit they were trying to pursue, that was just going against the outcome of the referendum. And it it was uh, ridiculous, really, because there was no consensus over what Brexit should look like. May had her sort of image of what it should look like. Boris Johnson had his. But there wasn't that sort of opportunity for Parliament to to debate the options and to come to a consensus because what they wanted was Parliament to, to get out of the way so they could do their negotiations come up with an idea and just get Parliament to, to sort of mm. do a meaningful vote, as it was called at the time. <laughs> we were all discussing it's a triggering phrase. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and, and sign it off. And you know, Parliament wasn't happy with that. And, and when that happened, they really set up this narrative of it's Parliament versus the people, which I think was really damaging from Parliament. Yeah, especially as Parliament is supposed to be the people. Exactly. Right? Parliament yeah. is supposed to be the people who are elected and form the government, but also all the other people who are elected as members of other parties or backbenchers of the governing party who are there to to do a job on behalf of their constituents. And you mention in your book that the House of Commons self-regulation of MPs' behaviour has been inadequate and damaged by scandal and all these things we've just been talking about. So my last question for you is, what would make it better? Yeah, unfortunately... It often takes a scandal to generate change in Westminster. We saw that with expenses. We've seen it with bullying and harassment. I I fear uh, that it's going to take the House of Commons burning down in the end, which seems... (laughs) It seems likely. (laughs) It does seem likely because they are so incapable of coming to a decision and sticking to it to actually fix the, the Palace of Westminster, which is effectively falling down. But, you know, that is the sort of thing which actually I think could generate a real reevaluation of what politics is for and how we go about it. The trouble is that until MPs are 
forced to confront some of these questions, they're really reluctant to do. And there's always a sense, and we saw this again with COVID, there were some changes in ways things were done, but there was always a sense that we must get back as quickly uh, as we can to the, to, to the way things were before. And that's because there were loads of sets of vested interests at play who like the way that things are currently done. And I, I think it's in many ways really unfortunate that all the people who are not members of parliament don't properly get a say over the way the House of Commons is run. It's, it's run by the people who are there, who've decided that they like the way it's done and they're going to keep it that good keep it done that way yeah and there's always this idealistic thing if only we could have a change of government they'll they'll make everything better the the system works just as well for them them once they get it exactly and you often see uh potentially really positive innovations squashed by the opposition because they're thinking about when we're next in power we don't want change to happen we're we're not going to support that change so it's uh, often the government governing party and the opposition who are in cahoots to stop positive change happening wow okay you can read more about this in hannah's new book held in contempt what's wrong with the house of commons published by manchester university press thanks so much hannah for coming on and explaining all of this so articulately You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my guest, Hannah White. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.